0: That's a great song to sing before we come and open the Word of God together and to hear what He would have for us this morning. So open your Bibles up, please, to James chapter 5, James chapter 5, page 1210, if you're using a pew Bible. We arrive this morning at the last study in the book of James. Wow. Wow. Thirteen weeks. No one thought that would be possible, did they? But indeed, we've done it. By the grace of God, in the last 13 weeks, we have studied through this book together and in it, we have been challenged. We have been convicted. We have been exhorted. We have been encouraged and we have been inspired that the faith that we hold so dear and true might show itself through our hands and our feet as we go through life living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what James would have for us. He's covered a number of topics in these five short chapters. He has spoken to us about suffering, He has spoken to us about compassion. He has spoken to us about the dangers of divisions and conflicts. And he has pinned our ears back with regard to the uncontrolled use of the tongue. James has spoken very clearly to us these last 12 weeks. This morning, by the grace of God, will be no different. The topic this morning on the mind of James and on my heart and mine too is the topic of prayer. James will close out his letter to us talking about the importance of prayer. And in particular, the importance of prayer when the church is experiencing hard times, hard times. James was a man of prayer. He not only wrote about it, he practiced it himself. The ancient Christian historian Eusebius, writing in the beginning of the fourth century, he speaks about James. he was known as old camel knees, old camel knees and Eusebius tells us that 's because calluses had built up on his knees from the extended amount of time he spent on his knees praying for the redemption of his people Israel. This man practiced what he preached. Beloved, nothing connects us with the sovereign God of the universe like prayer. Like prayer. That's because prayer demonstrates our complete dependence upon God. When we go to Him in prayer, we are proclaiming the reality that we need Him to intervene. It's also one of the most difficult activities in the Christian life, isn't it? It's difficult. It requires spiritual discipline. It requires faith. It requires humility. And it requires perseverance. And all of these things rage against us and seek to snuff out our time in prayer. If we're candid with each other, for many of us, prayer is not our first resort, but our last. Once we have expended all of our ingenuities and all of our energies, all of our thoughts and plans and efforts, well, there's nothing left to do. I guess we must now pray. The New Testament would have us do just the opposite, just the opposite. This section of Scripture before us this morning, beginning in verse 13 and finishing out the book, is, I believe, the most challenging section of the entire letter. There is a lot of difference of opinion. And as to what exactly James is talking about and what he means by what he says in this final section of the book. Over the years, there have been a number of conflicting interpretations. Roman Catholics find in these verses the justification for their doctrine of extreme unction. And while we rightly reject that interpretation we as evangelicals do not have a single and unified interpretation of this text for ourselves there's a fair amount of difference of opinion we are at odds with one another with regard to whether the passage is talking about spiritual or physical healing there are differences of opinion among good and godly men over whether the healing is in the context of chastisement or whether it is merely physical illness in general. So we're not sure, at least in a unified way, whether the passage is talking about spiritual healing or physical healing. We're not sure whether the context is physical illness in general or spiritual weakness in general or whether there is a Context here of divine chastisement, there is not a unified opinion. In light of these conflicting interpretations and the fact that a third of you with your MacArthur study Bibles already think you know what it means. And I'm about to launch into an exposition of this passage, which will diametrically conflict with what you're holding on your laps I do so with a fair amount of fear and trepidation. (laughs) I always check the MacArthur study notes because I know if I'm going to significantly deviate, I will hear about it. (laughs) So rest assured, I am aware. I'm aware and I have the utmost respect for Dr. MacArthur, but I just can't get there. So I will offer you this morning what I believe the passage is talking about. I offer it to you as my suggestion of what I think the text is saying. I believe the interpretation fairly handles the issues involved. I also reserve to myself the right, upon further study, to come back and amend my conclusions. How's that? (laughs) So with all of that as a preamble, let's take a look. The outline of the passage for you this morning is relatively simple. Three prayerful responses, three prayerful responses that we should imitate when difficulty arises in the church. That's the way I'll break it down. The first response to the difficulty in the church is personal prayer. Personal prayer. And we see it here in verse 13. Follow along, please, as I read. Is anyone among you suffering? Stop right there. Is any among you suffering, James says? My friends, life is filled with troubles, is it not? In the book of Job, one of Job's counselors notes that man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. The older I get, the longer I live, the more I observe my own life and the life of those that I know, the more convinced I become of that reality. That life is full of trouble. James is writing here specifically to a group of Jewish Christians who have been scattered from Jerusalem in the persecutions. And he speaks to them here about suffering. Is any among you suffering, he says. Literally, the idea is to experience what is bad, to suffer misfortune or calamity. Are you suffering? The word can refer to physical, mental, personal, financial, or religious hardship. It's a broad word. Cognate form of the word appears in verse 10 of the same chapter where it speaks there of the prophets. Who suffered. Clearly, their suffering had to do with persecution, and so some believe that that thought is here for James. And when he says, Is any among you suffering? he has in mind the idea of persecution, meaning, Is any, of, any among you suffering persecution? And that's possible to be sure. I'm convinced, though, that it's broader than that. I think it's all kinds of trials that come upon the people of God. You go back to chapter 1 and verse 2. James opens the letter. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. All kinds of things come to us in life. James is speaking, I think, about that here in verse 13. So I don't see it so narrow. I see it a little broader. Is anyone among you suffering hardship? Life is difficult right now. If I were to ask that question of you individually, I'm sure I would get many affirmative answers here this morning. And so James has something to say to us. What would God have us do? What is James' pastoral counsel here? When you are in the middle of difficulties, when you are in the middle of sufferings and hardships? Verse 13... Let him pray. You see it? Let him pray. What would God have us do when life is hard? Answer, pray. He would have us pray. Instead of complaining, as in verse 9, instead of engaging in self-pity, God would have us turn to him in prayer. What are we to pray for? What would our prayers look like? Again, James gives us some insight into that back in chapter 1. He says we are to pray for endurance. We are to pray for endurance. It is certainly legitimate to pray for deliverance or for relief. These are legitimate prayer requests. But characteristically here, James would have us pray for endurance. Endurance. We're to ask for wisdom, he says, chapter 1, verse 5, in the middle of our difficulties, so that we might understand the divine perspective in all that is going on. That James says to us that God is working through these difficulties and we need to come to him in prayer and ask that he might help us submit our hearts and minds to him as we go through the difficult times that he might accomplish in us the change in character that he desires to accomplish. Is life hard for you this morning? Are you in a difficult place? Maybe it is financial. Maybe in this rotten economy you are being squeezed slowly and surely, slipping away. God says, pray. Pray. Maybe you are Involved in a difficult relationship. There's some kind of relational pressure going on. Maybe your marriage is in serious trouble. God would have you pray. He would have you pray. But not all the people of God are involved at any one time in the hard place in life. And and so James picks up that thought as well for us in verse 13. And he says, Is anyone cheerful? Is anyone cheerful? Sometimes life's going pretty good, isn't it? Sometimes things are, are just basically working out. We're, we're content, we're elated, we're, we're upbeat, we're happy, we're, we're cheerful. Not the, not the idea of a superficial, light, joking kind of attitude. Just a, a real sense of contentment in life. It's going well. What do we do when that happens? Again, look at the verse. Again, we're back to praying. This time, it's singing praises to the Lord. It's an expression of prayer again, but this time, it's a musical expression of prayer that comes out from our lips. Singing praises. Paul says, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, an outworking of a spirit-filled life, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. When life is good, there should be a song on your lips. How easy that is to forget, isn't it? How easy it is to, to be aware of God, to be calling out for God when life is hard and then God delivers us from the difficulty and we kind of take the attitude of, okay, thank you, call you again when I need you. James says, no way. One seventeen. God is the source of all good things, James had written to us. And, and so, therefore, we need to acknowledge that reality through the gift of praise. Let us sing praises to our God. Let us, let us vocalize our prayers to God and to each other. I just love it when I hear people singing. I love to sing myself. The hotter the water is, the better the song is. If you know what I'm saying. <laughs> it's nothing like it, Robert. Hard tiles, warm water. I could have been an opera singer. <laughs> you know it's really good to have a song on your heart. To teach your children to, to vocalize the praises to God. Just love it. Walking around, hearing people many times they're not even aware of the fact they're singing. It's just it's just coming out. It's a heart that is overflowing with cheer. Love for God. It's exactly what James would have us do. You cheerful this morning. If you're cheerful this morning, sing it out. Sing it out. We're gonna have one more opportunity to sing. We finish preaching here and let her rip. You know, just sing it out. Life is tough. Life is good. Personal prayer. That's the answer. James goes on now to address really the core of the passage and the, the place of the greatest Controversy among interpreters, verses 14 through 18. I've entitled this section Pastoral Prayer. This is another response to difficulty. It's pastoral prayer. Let me read the text for you. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. Wow. I think the best way to approach this passage is to set it up with some general observations. So that's what I would like to do with you this morning is, before we plunge into its interpretation, let's just make some observations of the text. I think that will help set us up for the right answer here. There are a number of observations we could make. First, let us do this. Let us observe the fact that all the major Bible translations treat the Two Greek words here in verses 14 and 15, translating with the English word sick. So all of your major English Bible translations have landed on the idea of sickness, sick. Furthermore, in verse 15, you'll see the word, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick If you look in the margin of the New American Standard, you will see that the word, the Greek word here, could also be translated as save. could be translated as save. Thus you understand those who want to see this as a spiritual uh, illness that needs dealing with. But the usage of these words, translated here, sick and the word restore, are used in the Gospels, and this is the important thing, I think, they are used in the Gospels almost overwhelmingly to refer to physical illness and physical recovery. So hang on to that thought. They're used in the Gospels to speak of physical sickness and physical recovery. Furthermore, Just observing the text here a little bit, verse 14, it talks about anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. You see that. The anointing of someone who is weakened or sick appears only in one place in the New Testament. Other than this, it's Mark chapter 6 and verse 13, and there it is used in the context of physical illness and healing again. Now, James is the earliest New Testament writing. It's the earliest. James is also the stepbrother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beyond that, it is clear to anyone who reads James and has read the Gospels that there is a lot of similarity between the two in terms of concepts and vocabulary. They talk about many of the same issues, and they talk about them using somewhat identical vocabulary. So I'm convinced on that basis that James is speaking here about physical sickness, physical illness, and physical healing, physical recovery. I do not believe he's talking about a spiritual weakness and a spiritual recovery. Now, I know that departs from the MacArthur Study Bible, but I think he's talking about what we would call real sickness. I feel like I'm on pretty good ground here. As I said, most of the English, major English Bible translations Translated in the same way. So I'm not too far out on the limb. Number one. Number two, observation. Sickness and sin are woven together in this passage. Verse fifteen. It says at the end of the verse, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Verse sixteen, it says, Confess your sins to one another. Verses 19 and 20 also deal with restoring someone who is wandering away into sin. It says in the end, verse 20 will cover a multitude of sins. So there is sickness, bodily sickness going on, and there is sin. The concept of sin appears over and over again in the passage. So both of these ideas are here together in this passage. Now, we know for sure that the Bible teaches us that we should not assume that all sickness is a result of sin, correct? Book of Job makes that point very, very clear. Job chapter 1 and verse 1, Job was a righteous man, in fact, the most righteous man of his day. And yet all kinds of calamity came upon Job, including physical illness, Jesus says directly in John chapter 9, I won't take you there, but you can mark it down and check it out. John 9, verses 2 and 3, that clearly there, Jesus said, that the disciples ask, is this man sick because of something he's done or something his parents did? Jesus said, neither is that the power of God might be displayed. So Jesus is, is breaking that linkage that was there in the minds of the disciples. So we know clearly that all illness is not a result of personal sin. However, we also know that the Bible teaches that sometimes sickness does come as a result of personal sin. The witness of the scriptures speak of that. Mark them down, check them on your own. John chapter 5 and verse 14. Very clear statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Verses 27 and 30, there the context is communion, and that's important. We'll circle back to that. But there in in the communion celebration, Paul says, Because you have failed to discern the body rightly, some of you are sick, and yea, some of you have died. So sin, illness, death, related there in 1 Corinthians 11. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4 David speaks about while he was in his iniquity that all kinds of physical afflictions came upon him. So there are places in the scripture that speak about sin and sickness and in fact sickness as a judgment upon sin. So while all sickness does not result from personal sin, some sickness does result from personal sin. Here in this passage, the connection between sin and sickness seems to me to be particularly close, being mentioned repeatedly in just these few verses. Came across an interesting quote from a Bible commentator with regard to this. So let me read it to you. He says, and I quote In Jesus' day, people over spiritualized illness. Many assumed that all tragedy and disease were direct consequences of sin. Today, in the West, we de spiritualize illness. We believe microbes and defective genes cause all illness. We deny a link between sin and illness, except in obvious cases, such as cirrhosis of the liver and sexually transmitted disease. In fact, he goes on to say, we need to re-spiritualize illness, for the scripture often links sin and illness. I thought it was a really interesting insight. What he's saying is that in Bible times, there was too much linkage. There was an immediate assumption, if you were sick, it was because you had sinned. And in fact, many parts of the world, and in the third world in particular, that kind of linkage still exists very closely. We here in the West, we reject all of that. We're so scientific about such things. We are so materially oriented in our outlook on life. We have sort of locked God out of the box And so we are looking for a natural, materialistic explanation for every single thing. And so in many cases, we deny the spiritual linkage between sin and sickness. The author says we ought to think more carefully about that and we ought to reestablish or, as he says, re-spiritualize illness. We ought to consider the possibility that sin may actually lie at the cause of some illnesses. Now, if that sounds foreign to your ears, that is merely proof that you have been thoroughly westernized and that you have been thoroughly transformed in your thinking to be a naturalist and to deny the supernatural. So the linkage here, my second observation between sin and sickness, leads me to my third and final pre-observation before we interpret and that is drawn from the illustration, beginning in verse 17, 17 and 18, of Elijah. The illustration of Elijah. Elijah's prayer is drawn from 1 Kings, chapters 17 and 18. In that section of Scripture, Elijah announces that the land will not have any rain upon it. It will suffer under drought for three and a half years. He then prays and the drought is broken. The rain pours forth onto the ground and the ground becomes fertile again and pours forth its fruit. James reaches back into the Old Testament and he draws that illustration forward to illustrate what he is teaching in verses 14 through 16. So the illustration in 17 and 18 is supposed to illustrate the lesson of verses 14 and And six through 16. And so that's an important thing to remember. Now, it says, verse 17, that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That is, he was merely a man. That is important. He had been so revered in Jewish society that they thought he was kind of a half step above the rest of the mere mortals. And so James is reminding everybody, no, no, no. He is just a man like you or I. He's a human. And that's important when speaking of the power of prayer. His spectacular prayer here, the prayer of judgment that that Elijah prayed and the judgment fell, it came in response to the prayer of a mere mortal man. A mortal man prayed and God poured out judgment. A mortal man prayed again and God lifted the judgment. So we don't want to miss that. But I think the illustration is talking more than just about the effectual prayer of a righteous man. The idea that when you pray hard, God responds. I think there's more to it than that. There are a number of different examples that James could have lifted from the life of Elijah, but he chose this one. He chose this one. And this is really a very fascinating vignette from the life of the prophet elijah what is it about this account in the life of elijah that that sheds additional light on the topic of at hand here in verses 14 to 16 i think the answer to that question lies in an understanding of the old testament covenant the mosaic covenant in the mosaic covenant when god made a covenant with his people israel There at Sinai, and he he took them into the bond of that covenant. He promised his people that if they would obey him, he would bless them and he would bless their land. But if they refused to obey him, if they turned to the idols of the land, that he would pour out judgment upon them. He would afflict their land with diseases, including drought. Deuteronomy chapter 28 Verses 23 and 24, let me read it to you. Moses writes, And the heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. That's the section at the end of Deuteronomy where the curses of the covenant are laid out for the nation of Israel, should they refuse to obey. And one of the curses of the covenant is drought. It's, it's disease upon the land in the form of drought. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, God tells Solomon what to do when the nation is experiencing this kind of judgment. He says, and I quote, God speaking to Solomon, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Second Chronicles seven thirteen to fourteen a passage that's been hijacked by many that should remain in its initial context for a proper understanding. The account of Elijah, 1 Kings 17 and 18, is the account of the people going into idolatry. Under the wicked king Ahab, the people had turned so far from God and were following after the Baals and the Asherah that God brought judgment upon the land by making it sick. He made the land sick by withholding rain. When the people repented by slaughtering the prophets of Baal, you remember at Mount Carmel, when the people repented, when Elijah called them, who will you be with? Will you stand with God or will you stand with the Baals? And the people responded by slaughtering the prophets of Baal. Thus, evidencing their repentance, Elijah prays, the rain comes, God lifts the judgment upon the land. So you get the connection. The land is sick because of sin. The land is healed by repentance and confession. And prayer lifts the judgment that has been put on the land. All right. With all of that swirling around in your minds as background, let's take another look at verses 14 to 16. James says, verse 14, "Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord." What he's saying here is that if someone in the church, someone in the fellowship, is so ill that they are unable To come, they are to call for the elders to come to them. They are to summon the elders, and the elders are to come. When the elders arrive, they are to pray over this sick person, and they are to anoint him with oil. Now, that immediately, by the way, rules out all public healing services, at least based on this passage, right? You can't get them out of this passage. This is a very private matter. A very private matter. The main verb here, it says, is that they are to pray over him. The middle of verse 14. They are to pray over him. That's the big idea of what the elders are supposed to do. They are to pray. The anointing with oil is a subsidiary idea. It is a lesser, an idea of lesser importance. What the purpose of the oil is, is anybody's guess sorry anybody's guess and i read i think 20 plus commentaries and got 30 possibilities (laughs) the answer is nobody really knows nobody knows it's possible that it was medicinal oil was used somewhat medicinally in the first century although the connection i'm not so sure Others see it as symbolic. Actually, I lean a little bit towards the symbolic idea, the reason being that you anoint him in the name of the Lord, you see at the end of verse 14, in the name of the Lord. So I don't see here the idea of pray and call the doctor, you know, pray and penicillin or however you want to kind of make that. I think that there's something else going on here. The main idea is prayer. The anointing with oil is is a subsidiary idea of lesser value. The big idea is to pray. The text promises something here in verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Take a good look at that promise. That is a promise that is an ironclad promise. Every commentator I read who gave you their their understanding of the text, they would finish with an anecdotal story about somebody who they prayed for and it was healed as if that proved their case, whether it was spiritual healing or physical healing. The problem is we all know many people who have been prayed for who do not get bitter. You don't have to be in the pastoral ministry very long for that to happen. And so there's something more going on here. There is a promise of healing here that we need to take seriously. A serious promise of healing. And it's in response to a prayer offered in faith. Verse 15. I think it's the faith, certainly of the elders. It is to be their faith, believing that God will hear and answer their prayer, to be sure. But I think it also involves the faith of the individual who is calling for them. Their faith being demonstrated in the fact that they would actually call the elders to come and to pray for them in the first place. So I think there's faith on both parties involved here. Leading idea again, I believe, faith on the part of the elders. Notice verse 16 coming right out of this begins with the word therefore. A conclusion is being drawn based on what has just been said. And And in verse 16, there's a clear linkage. Confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, so that, purpose clause, you may be healed. Do you see the close linkage? Verse 16 is a concluding idea from what has been said in verses 14 and 15. And then it speaks about the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. It's very effective Their prayer. Now the idea occurs to me that the elder, who is the person, the elders who have been called for here, back in verse 14, would be righteous men, would they not? One doesn't become an elder among the people of God, at least in a biblical church, without being a righteous man. Not a perfect man, but a man of spiritual maturity. One qualified to hold that role among the congregation. And then James proceeds to give the illustration of Elijah. So putting it all together, it appears to me that what is going on here is that there is sin in the camp. There is sin in the body here. And what has happened is God has brought illness upon this sinning person. And this sinning person is now so incapacitated by the chastisement of God that has come upon them for their sin that they are unable to come to the elders to repent, but they must now call for the elders to come to them. Possible, even, that they have been put out of the fellowship, according to Matthew chapter 18. That idea is possible as well. In the condition of their failing health, they come to a place of repentance. And so they call for the elders to come and to pray over them and to anoint them with oil. They confess their sin and they receive the lifting of the judgment of God and they are healed. I believe that's what James is saying. So this is pastoral prayer in the extreme circumstances of church discipline, serious sin. It's possible, by the way, just thinking more, a little more on the oil, the anointing with oil, thought about uh, Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, beard coming down upon the edge of his robe. So there we have the idea of unity in the body and oil placed together in the same context. Now we know that James has been hammering away, beginning in chapter 3, with division among the body. All kinds of evil talking going on as people are biting and snapping and tearing and chewing at each other. And he's been rebuking them about that. So I think the sin we're talking about here is probably a sin related to to divisiveness within the body, the local body itself. And that brings me to the whole idea of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So I'll refer you there just to remind you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Verse 17, Paul writes, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number asleep. What was going on in Corinth? Is that those within the body... When they came together to take that memorial meal, which was to celebrate their unity in Jesus Christ, it had become an opportunity for them to fight and bicker and show off and, and, and demonstrate pride and arrogance with one another. And it became a flashpoint of factionalism within the body of Christ. And so God takes it very seriously when you mess with the communion to the place where he was actually causing some of them to fall ill and even taking their lives. So Paul says, listen, when you come to communion, you better make sure that you are right with one another in the body. It's not so much about confessing personal sin before God as it is about confessing corporate sin one with another. So that we don't make a mockery out of that which is to demonstrate our unity. Back to James 5. I think something similar is going on here in James 5. Now, by the way, the uh, one another language, I need to speak to that very briefly. Verse 16, confess your sins to one another. How do I explain the one another language? I explain it in this way. I believe that James writing for someone who is outside and over these churches is writing to them. And the one another concerns the elders and the members of the worshiping community. That's the one another. And James is speaking to them from outside. And and thus he can phrase it that way. Confess your sins to one another, people to the elders. Pastoral prayer. That leads to the third and and final response, verses nineteen and twenty i 'm calling it pursuing prayer, pursuing prayer, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins here james is is widening his his teaching to the body here to pull everybody in. He's been speaking earlier to the elders in a very specific situation of what they're supposed to do when someone is suffering illness because of divine chastisement. Now he widens it to include all of us and says, this is how you all are to respond when someone is wobbling or someone is straying away from the truth. The whole congregation is to be part of the restorative process. One of you, do you see it? Verse 19, my brethren, speaking there of, in a term of affection for the believers, if anyone among you strays from the truth, that is, he wanders away. He strays away. It's like a metaphor of a sheep who has wandered from the sheepfold. This wandering may be inadvertent or it may be willful. It may be by accident or it may be by intent. It doesn't matter. James doesn't seem to call it out. Whether it's accidental that you have strayed from the truth or whether you are deliberately turning and walking away from God, in either case, we are to come after you. We are to come after you. Strayed from the truth, verse 19. The path of truth. The Proverbs make it very clear. There are two paths of life. There is the path of righteousness, the path of wisdom, the path of of truth. And there is the path of darkness. There is the path of foolishness. There is the path of death. Jesus says it the same way, Matthew 7, right? Two gates, two paths, only two options. God's way and the other way. And so one who who has wandered here, it says, straight away, verse 19, from the truth, from the path of truth. That is, they have walked away from right doctrine and they have resulted in a walking away from right behavior. Behavior is produced by doctrine. As a man thinks in his heart, so he does. So this person, and this is a hypothetical here, but this person is straying. They are wandering away. They may have, they may have been enticed away or they may have just turned on their heels and walked away, but in either case, they are leaving the truth the path of truth, and we are not to just merely let them go, we are to go after them. We are to go after them. Because if they continue to wander from the truth, verse 20, they will die. The end of the path is death. Behind the door of the prostitute's house, the harlot's house, that looks so inviting to the young man, he opens the door, he walks through, and it's a direct Mine shaft down to Sheol, the writer of Proverbs tells us. It is death to go through the door. It is death to leave the path of life. It produces death. Verse 20, Let him know he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death. Possibly physically killing him, physical death, 1 Corinthians 11.30 that we read, and certainly spiritual death. If one strays from the path of truth and continues to walk and never turns, never comes back, my friends, they are headed to hell. They are headed to hell. It is the path of destruction. It is the path of destruction. Now, throughout this entire letter, James has been hammering away saying that true faith produces good fruit. True faith produces good fruit. A lack of good fruit betrays any claim to saving faith. That's what James would say to you. James would say, I don't care what you say you believe. Show me what you believe and show it to me with your life of righteousness. Here, someone has turned and walked away. They have turned and walked away. And the instruction is exceedingly clear. We're to go after them. We're to pursue them. We're not to let them go. We're to chase them. We're to attempt to turn them back around to the way of truth. And in doing so, we will save their soul from death. And God will cover a multitude of sins. That's just a way of saying forgiveness. They will receive Forgiveness. I don't think there's any way in this context to assume that this pleading with this erring person cannot include fervent prayer. There's just no way to chase after them, to plead with them, to, to, to do everything you can to turn them back onto the path is bathed in fervent prayer. That's why I call this pursuing prayer. It's pursuing prayer. To love like this, when somebody doesn't want to be loved like this, when they don't want you to come after them, when they tell you to get lost, requires a work of the Spirit of God in our heart. Because for most of us, what we would say is fine. Right? You made your own bed, sleep in it. James would have us go for them and continue to pursue them. The hope that God would grant them repentance, that they would confess their sin, that they would turn back to the truth. This is what it means to courageously proclaim Christ. This is what it means. Our third core value is that we are dedicated to prayer, right? Right? Dedicated to prayer, being dedicated to prayer doesn 't just mean we show up once a month, first Sunday of the month at prayer meeting. Dedicated to prayer means that prayer is like Paul says in first in Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. It is a constant in our life personally when we 're suffering, we pray personally when we 're doing really wo- really well, we, we praise. When someone is is under the divine chastisement because of their sin, we go to them as elders and we pray and we seek to restore them. And one another among the body, when you see someone straying from the truth, don't turn your back. Don't blow them off. Go after them. Plead with them. Pray for them that God might bring them back. May God grant us the grace. To put his word into practice. Let's pray. <coughs> Our father God. I thank you for these 13 short weeks. In the book of James. Our father we have been confronted. Every single week. There hasn't been a single week. That we could cruise. That we could check out. That we could. Put it on autopilot. Reading the book of James is is like going three rounds with a heavyweight prize fighter. Father, we're a bit battered and bruised. But we rejoice that the, the wounds come from one who loves us. That they are the blows of one who seeks to turn us to the truth. So, Lord, we embrace what you have to say to us. We embrace, our Father, the conviction. We embrace the challenge. We embrace the admonitions. Oh, Lord, we embrace your grace that seeks us out, that transforms us, that has saved us and is continuing to save us moment by moment and day by day. Oh, Lord, we rejoice in what you're doing in our midst. We rejoice in what you're doing personally in our hearts. Oh Lord, we thank you for your tender love through Jesus Christ, our Savior. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.